Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for December 21st, 2017. On today's show, we're going to be diving into a bunch of news, including Ben Affleck's Batman plans, the first reviews from the movie Bright, uh, reaction to the trailer for the Overboard remake, uh, a group takes credit for the Star Wars Last Jedi backlash, and Snoke apparently has another apprentice. And in the water cooler, we'll be talking about Survivor, the breadwinner and ultimate beastmaster. This is Peter Sarada, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. And Slash Film Writer Huai Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Uh, join me over here by the water cooler. Uh, it's almost Christmas, it's almost here. Um, but, uh, it's not quite here yet. Uh, news is slowing down. Uh, last night I saw the. Actually, I saw two things, by the way. I saw, um, before I get to Survivor, I went out to the theater and saw The Disaster Artist, um, which I fully planned on loving, and I liked quite a bit, but didn't love. I, I was kind of, uh, it did not hit my expectations of where I thought it was going to you know, be. You know, I thought I'm it would I'm not the only one. Yeah, I think, um... I think Dave Chen said this, so I don't want to feel like I'm stealing his line, but um, I think Brigsby Bear this year did for me what I was hoping that movie was going to do in be- in ways of like, you know, similar things. If, if, if anybody's seen that, and if, if you haven't seen that, I would definitely uh, highly recommend going to, going to see Brigsby Bear. I did like The Disaster Artist quite a bit. It's just... Um, I don't know. I don't think it's quite as successful as people are making out to be in terms of what it's trying to accomplish uh, with the whole. You mean me, Peter? (laughs) Yeah. Like, I don't know. I I guess there's kind of this message of like, you know, if you can dream it, you can make it, which I know it's not that simple. But it, it I mean, yes, you can dream it. You can make it if you have a lot of money. And and uh, the, the kind of buddy story at the center of this is is kind of not uh, as as uh, I don't know. It's not as good as I wanted it to be, if that makes sense. And also, J- James Franco, 
half the time I feel like he's doing an imitation rather than like acting. I know that there's like a kind of fine line there, but uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. I don't want to, you know, seem like I'm hating on this thing that everybody loves. I would highly recommend you go see it, but I, I just don't love it as much as everybody else seems to. Uh, J- Jacob, why am I wrong? <laughs> I don't think you're wrong. Cause you're not the only person that has reaction. Uh, I, it's kind of a shame that uh, our own uh, Bradford Omen is not on this uh, show today because he also loves disaster artists and he's seen Briggsby Bear. So we could talk to you about both of those. But I, I can only talk about. I've seen Briggsby Bear too. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Um, yeah. But I, I don't, I don't know. This is a case where I can't like look at your arguments and poke holes in them because I think it's just a difference of opinion. I think Franco is remarkable and sad. I think the movies concentration on this dynamic between him and an actor played by his brother Dave Franco is really sweet and endearing and I think it's about more than make it uh, make it till you break it I think it's really about the, the family you find through failure and he throws the Ed Wood message so I'm not going to begrudge Peter for not liking it that's, that's fine but I definitely got a lot out of it I really enjoyed it and, and again it's not that I didn't like it it's just uh, you know what I think it's these expectations that are set up by the, like these film festival screenings and you hear kind of like these over the moon I mean your your review of it was pretty high praise so maybe, maybe my reaction is based on the you know the blue sky expectations of it but uh HT, you saw both. Uh, I haven't heard you talk about Briggs and Bear. W- what do you think the comparison of those two films is? I could definitely see the similarities. I think I would say I like Briggs Bear more because I think it's more coherent in its sort of um, earnest message about how cinema can bring people together and that whole found family that Jacob was kind of touching on. Whereas Disaster Artist has a lot of different things going for it. It has this sort of... Uh, ironic comedy of that surrounds the cults of the room. It has, uh, you know, the the idea of this weird codependent relationship between the two um, best friends, and it also has that idea about uh, being about dreaming to make it in Hollywood, and this being sort of the the sad underbelly of that. Um, and for me, I it didn't quite like hit all. All of those marks. It worked well in each of those little subjects. The disaster artist did, but it didn't quite uh, cohere for me. Whereas Briggsy Bear, I think, was a much more just kind of singular message, and it worked better in that regard. For sure. And, uh, you know, I got out of that screening at 10 p.m. and rushed home. The season finale of Survivor had aired that night. And, um, You know, I I know you've heard me talk about spoilers on the podcast in the past, and you know that I I, I don't think that there, you know, spoilers can ruin things, but I I had to stay up until 1230 a.m. watching Survivor because I do think in terms of like a sport or, you know, that kind of outcome, uh, spoilers can ruin things. (laughs) So uh, I I stayed up late last night to watch the Survivor finale. Uh, I want to first say that... I would consider myself not someone who watches a lot of reality television. Um, I would say probably like 5% or maybe 10% of my my entertainment diet it would, would fit in the category of reality. Um, but my entertainment diet is quite big. So that 5-10% is probably a lot more than most people watch. Um, uh, I haven't watched Survivor since the first couple seasons. Have either of you watched Survivor? No, I, watched I was always an amazing season. race. 
talked over HT. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I did too. Go ahead, Jacob. I was going to say, in my house, you were either a survivor person or an amazing race person, and I was an amazing race person. So I've never seen much of Survivor at all. I've only recently started watching Amazing Race because my girlfriend Ketra is kind of addicted to that show. Uh, Survivor was one of those shows that I watched the first couple seasons of, but it's a show, I think they're on like almost their 30th season by now, which is insane to think that there's been that many seasons of Survivor. Uh, but the show evolved so much over that time. Like when, when I was watching it back in the beginning days, it like the people that came onto the show didn't kind of know the rules of the show and how the political dynamics work and, you know, all that kind of thing. And I remember that first season, there was even kind of like this big backstab that no one saw coming. Uh, now it, it's actually interesting that, you know, you have a generation of people that grew up watching Survivor now appearing on Survivor. So they kind of like go in with this, uh, I'm not sure how I can uh, what I could compare it to like maybe um I think Jacob could relate to this like in some board games or like you go into like uh, Magic the Gathering it's hard for like a newcomer to come into that kind of game because there's so much meta and so much so many strategies that are already established uh so it's kind of interesting uh coming into this as a newcomer of you know who hasn't watched the last 20 or so seasons um you know, seeing this show and, uh, you know, I, I never thought I would be someone that would get sucked back into Survivor, but this season has been so good, guys. I, I, I gotta highly recommend it. Uh, the, 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 I don't know. I, I'm not sure what I can say without spoiling things and I don't want to spoil things for people who have not watched this, but, uh, th there's just so many, it's like, you know, obviously each episode the the tribe meets and they vote off one of the the tribe right that's like the big thing on survivor and there's an immunity challenge each week where someone can win immunity from getting voting voted off and there's also a hidden immunity idol hidden somewhere on the island and uh this season basically had a guy that everybody wanted to vote off for like weeks and weeks and weeks and every like time he would uh, there was like one night where they got out of the tribal council and he didn't go to sleep like the whole rest of the tribe and just spent all night looking for the hidden immunity idol and was able to find the hidden immunity idol so that they couldn't vote him off the next day and it's just um i don't know it's it just a lot of twists and turns it's a lot of fun um i know it's probably disposable fun but it's it's fun nonetheless and uh, i know we didn't plan this jacob but it, you also have a reality uh competition show that you have been watching lately yes i've been binging two shows i talked about the crown when i was on last time on netflix and i'm in season two right now and it is superb and you should watch the crown and then take a break from the crown because it deserves to be digested and thought about. And then go watch Ultimate Beastmaster, <laughs> the opposite of the crown, but also a Netflix show. This is essential. The, the easy comparison is it's like the TV show Ninja Warrior. A bunch of athletes go through an obstacle course and the champions go on and compete against each other, doing a very series of increasingly difficult physical challenges. But it reminds me more of the old Nickelodeon show Global Guts. If you're if you're a '90s kid, you remember this. Uh, but it was that was a show where a bunch of kids from around the world like, climbed mountains and did physical activities and compete against each other in a very positive, lighthearted way that kind of celebrated 
the international community. And Ultimate Beastmaster may look like Ninja Warrior, but it's better produced. It has this Netflix sheen to it. And it is the most positive show. It is so much more positive than Ninja Warrior and, or Wipeout or any of those other uh, regular shows you see where people are doing stunts and uh, obstacle courses. The gist of it is that's an international co-production. So all the participating nations have their own commentators, and each nation has their own version of Ultimate Beastmaster. And on Netflix, you can watch the American version, whereas in France or uh, another nation, you can watch the uh, French version, where it's aired and told from the French point of view. But what's so charming about it, and why it's so good, and why it's so more than just watching these impossibly fit people make stupidly long jumps and carry themselves over pits, is that... There's a sense of camaraderie between the contestants and the hosts because all the hosts' um, booths where they record and do the commentary are all next to each other. So in the first episodes of of each season, it's always a little stiff as all the new commentators get to know each other, get to know the show. Then by episode two or three, uh, the people in the Chinese booth will wander over to the Indian booth and start like joining them and cheering on their contestant. Or the uh, the, the season, the hosts of the uh, French booth and the Italian booth started an arbitrary rivalry where they always root against each other and are always like, really mean to each other, but in really fun ways. But at the same time, if if an if Italian team does really well, the French cheer them on and vice versa. And it becomes this show that's less about watching people do athletic things and more about watching these people from around the world um, interact and enjoy each other's company and cheer each other on. And it's just, it's, it's, it's it makes me feel really good. It's a very warm show in that way. And... I don't want to say too much because it's only on season two and I don't want to spoil which countries do well, which ones don't, but it, it, it's really fun. And I really, in a time, God, here comes politics again. In, in, in a time where America continually tries to become this isolationist nation that doesn't want to have part of your national community, watching this show where people from around the world are just coming together and being nice together and jumping over things. It feels really nice. Has anybody else watched this show? I mean, I feel like I'm the only one watching it. I have a. Uh, I watched a couple seasons of American Ninja Warrior. Uh, you know, kind of fall off that wagon, and we'll watch an episode now and then. Uh, I've watched a couple episodes of this, and I, I agree the production value is better. Um, I always think it's so weird because you know I mentioned earlier before that uh, sports I think is the one thing that falls into that role that could be spoiled for you. And American Ninja Warrior and Ultimate Beastmaster are obviously filmed months in advance before they air. And I'm sure you could probably look up who's the winner um, of these things. But for some reason, that doesn't stop audiences from watching these things and caring because it's not about who wins. It's more about, you know, th- what happens on the obstacle course. And it, it's it's kind of a, a, an interesting – it's interesting that that's much different than all of the rest of sports, I think. HG, do you want to watch a show where people jump over things and get cheered on from around the world? Well, I've seen a couple of clips from American Ninja Warrior, but I'm most of the reality shows I watch are cooking shows, aka Chopped. Uh, so I don't think I will intentionally seek it out, but I might, I might watch a clip or two. How is Chopped? Chopped is amazing. Uh, it's always a good sort of wind down show. Uh, have you guys heard of Chopped? I watch Chopped religiously, but it's still mm-hmm. no Top Chef. That's that's my stance on Chopped. Okay, I I love Chopped just because it's always a fun. You, it's always a very unique basket that they get. So uh, these four chefs at the beginning are uh, compete in um and 
appetizer, entree, and dessert round with uh, different ingredients that they're supposed to use from a basket every time. So it always throws a loop in the competition, and um, I, I get addicted to it. One time there was a whole chop tournament that went on for like four episodes, and I was watching with my, with my friends for like five hours. We got very into it. So it's a it's a fun competitive show, and it's still it's still not um cutthroat kitchen which is like the sort of bane <laughs> of a food network shows do, do you think you learn cooking skills from chopped like like i watch like you know sometimes i'll watch like you know the like property brothers or those kind of shows and like i, I don't think i gain any any insights <laughs> into the process watching the only thing i know from watching hgtv shows is like open concept is good yes. yeah i I like to think that I would be a better cook because of watching so much chop, but I definitely do not know how to how to cook. It stresses me out. <laughs> okay, so HD, what have you been up to since the last time we talked to you, which was yesterday? Well, in a f- sort of follow-up to yesterday's episode in which I was uh, slowly catching up on all the animated films in 2017, I watched The Breadwinner, which Peter was telling me about yesterday and which I'd been planning to watch but hadn't gone to yet. So that is a uh, Canadian, um, uh, Irish, Luxembourgian animated film set in 2001 Afghanistan that follows a young 11-year-old girl who's father is wrongfully arrested and because under Taliban rule a uh, woman can't leave the house out without a uh, male relative and she's in a family with only um, a female a sister and a mother and a little infant boy infant uh, brother she ends up uh, cutting her hair and cross-dressing as a boy to try to feed her family and it's this really it's this deeply affecting, gorgeously animated film that uh, tells this young girl's story and is very gripping and kind of and, and bitter and everything like that. But it also tells this sort of whimsical tale interwoven in, um, between her story uh, because her father and she are storytellers. And it has this it follows this tale of this y- young boy on a quest to uh, retrieve brain from an evil elephant king so it kind of <laughs> has those parallels of of the two stories between her uh, trying to find her father again and this boy trying to um go on this quest to save his village it's kind of it reminded me a little bit of um alfonso Cuarón's a little princess from the the 90s and uh, in the way that it sort of interweaves that tragic tale with a more whimsical uh fairy tale-esque tale and it's it's so beautiful it's definitely um one of the best films i've seen this year is is it it better or worse than the emoji movie no (laughs) well i don't know about that (laughs) definitely leagues better yeah, no, I, I think it's between Coco and the Breadwinner this year at all the award shows. Like, there, there's no other competition. It seems. Um, is this a two D animated film? It is. It's hand drawn, yeah. and it's drawn in two distinct styles too, because to separate her story and the story that she's telling about the Elephant King. So it's it's so gorgeously animated, and I'm a huge fan of hand drawn animation myself. Not really, never really warming to to CG three D animation. So I um. I'm always um, blown away whenever I see a movie that takes the time to have uh, hand-drawn 2D animation. Yeah, I'm, I'm still hoping that one day Walt Disney Animation or Pixar will will do a hand-drawn animated film again. I feel like uh, Princess and the Frog was 
was a bad litmus test. Uh, not that it's a bad movie, but it was it's just not the right movie to, you know, base the future of that uh, kind of uh, medium on. But mm-hmm. um, let's get into the news because we've spent a lot of time at the water cooler. Um, the trailer for the Overboard remake has uh, been released. And I'm not sure uh, if people out there know, but there was this movie in the 80s called Overboard, which had Kurt Russell and Goldie Hawn, who really uh, who later got married in real life. And um, they uh, it, it basically told the story of a uh, poor man who meets this rich woman who falls off the deck of her yacht and gets amnesia. And she convinces him or he convinces her to come back and live that she is the mother of his children and his wife. And uh, it's, you know, in, in today's day and age, it's all kind of uh, wrong and rapey kind of vibes to it. But uh, in, in the 80s, it was a fun film. Uh, so now there's this remake starring um, Anna Ferris, who, uh, yeah, and um, it's uh, kind of a gender uh, swap. So it's it's her convincing the guy which I guess makes it less wrong and feel less rapey. Uh, what do you guys think of this trailer? Um, well, it was fine. It didn't really uh, draw out a lot of laughs from me. I think this premise does work slightly better than uh, the original premise because it doesn't have all of the uh, sort of implications of like women and being housewives and being mothers and everything and trying to fit women into that sort of uh, gender role. And here it's more just about getting revenge on this rich man who ruined her life. Uh, So it kind of has more of a jokey premise. Uh, I don't really have the same chemistry between Anna Ferris and her co-star as um, Goldie Hawn and um, Kurt, Russell. Bon, Kurt Russell did, yeah. who's uh, uh, Eugenio Derbez. So it it seems like a, a fine movie that I probably would not pay to go see. <laughs> but um, I actually, even though the original Overboard is quite problematic, I enjoyed it when I watched it just because the chemistry between Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell was so good. So um, I don't see the same spark here between um, Anna and Eugenio. Yeah, the chemistry was so good, and there was that whole sequence where the where the family kind of invents this, like, uh, mini-golf uh, uh, place that's uh, uh, kind of cool and invent- and if you're a kid you're like oh that's so cool i want to i don't know it, it, it was a fun movie as a kid but J- jacob you have not seen the original movie what do, what do you think of this trailer is this something that you would want to see i love anna faris i keep waiting for a movie to make me love anna faris for a reason beyond her sounding really charming in interviews i think she's a bright spot on a lot of bad movies and this seems to continue that trend nothing in this trailer looks charming or fun to me uh, I do. The thing I find most interesting about it is that I, Eugenio Derbez, he's. You, you think they go for a bigger actor for this, and that was my initial reaction was, who was this guy? Then I remember that he's a uh, Mexican actor, comedian, writer, filmmaker, businessman. He directed and starred in Instruction Is Not Included, which was actually a huge box office hit worldwide a couple years ago. Uh, he is one of the biggest Mexican stars in the world. So I'm really curious to see how this movie is, if this is meant to be a movie that international audiences are going to go see as opposed to Americans, because Anna Faris is not a huge draw, but this guy outside of the United States is. So looking at it from that perspective, 
it's really interesting to see that they may be courting an audience beyond the usual American comedy fans. Uh, but like I said, I'm not familiar with his work, but he's prolific. He's made a lot of stuff in Mexico. So I'm I'm, I'm going to watch this for that reason, or watch it from from a distance for that reason to see if this is a big hit in Mexico. Because I don't, can't imagine it doing well here based on this trailer. And you're right about Anna Thera. She's one of these one of those actors or actresses that uh, we love, and it, I think is good. But she picks the worst projects, can like constantly. She's like in the worst films. Um, so I'd like to see her actually be in a good film one of these days. Um, but let's move on from that to Batman. Ben Affleck uh, has said some new uh, new things about how he wants to still direct a Batman movie. HC, what did, what did he say? Um, so Ben Affleck has been sort of waffling back and forth for the past six months on whether he will continue to play Batman in the DC Extended Universe. And he originally was set to direct the Batman uh, before Matt Reeves was hired on to write and direct the film, uh, which would be the first Batman solo film in the DCEU. But now Ben Affleck is... Uh, expressing interest again in directing a Batman movie. So his quote, uh, I will read a little bit of it. Um, I want to direct a Batman movie, and I never got a script that I was happy with. So they are starting over and writing another script. And right now, I think a lot of different possibilities, I think, for the way the DC Universe could go. And I will just follow my interest in pursuing that. So it's very vague in terms of whether he'll actually reprise his role as Batman, but he does explicitly say that he wants to direct a Batman film. Um, whether that'll be with him in the cape and cowl or not is another question. That is so strange because I just assumed after he kind of got taken out of the running for the Batman and being replaced with Matt Reeves, that, you know, the possibility of seeing a Ben Affleck directed Batman movie was out of the book. You know, it's, it wasn't going to happen. Uh, Jacob, would you still like to see a Ben Affleck directed Batman movie? At this point, he seems so beaten down by the role and so weary of it that I'd rather he just move on and find things he's passionate about. He's made good movies. I really like Argo. I like um, Gone Baby Gone. But when you, whenever you talk to Batman, even when he's trying to remain positive or talk about the future like this, you, you can feel his eyes glazing over to <laughs> every word he's of his statement. Meme. <laughs> yeah. I think he, I don't want. But, but I want Ben Affleck to be let free. Let him go. Let, let, let's just get somebody else in there. Somebody who's excited about it. I, I feel like Ben Affleck did Daredevil, was really embarrassed, came back to Batman thinking it'll work this time, and now he's really embarrassed again, and he's trying to ease his way out. I don't buy a word of what he says anymore. I think he's just killing time until he can bolt. And I, I say, let him free. Take off the shackles. Let him run. Let Affleck go, Warner <laughs> Brothers. Let him go. Oh, I, I think they will. But, um, you know, I, I would like to see a Ben Affleck-directed Batman movie not starring Ben Affleck. Uh, you know, I think um, Ben Affleck, the actor, is the one getting in the way of Ben Affleck, the director, often, I find. Uh, Gone Baby Gone, that's the movie that he's not in, right, that he directed? Yeah. Yeah. He's the Affleck's in it. I feel like that is maybe his best film, and maybe it's because he had more time to spend behind the camera and not worry about you know juggling two things. Because when you're when you're starring in a film, you know how are you concentrating on what you're doing and what everybody else is doing at the same time? Um, so yeah, um, but we'll have to see. I don't think that's ever going to happen. But it would be interesting if DC decide or if Warner Brothers decided to do you know more of these 
standalone movies if Ben Affleck would direct a you know standalone Batman film that doesn't have anything to do with this DCEU. But, a Batman Beyond film, Peter. Yes, yes, we we, <laughs> we are both hoping for that, and it's never going to happen, but uh, maybe someday. Okay, yesterday we were talking about Bright. Netflix has already greenlit a sequel. Will Smith is signed on to return, and the first reviews hit. Jacob, is it good? The reviews are incredibly unkind to Peter. The, the word embarrassing appears in many of them. The, there's one that I'm going to read, read a sample from real quick. Um, that's from David Ehrlich at IndieWire, who calls it the worst movie of 2017. And this is a good one-liner, so I'm going to read it. There's boring, there's bad, and then there's bright. A movie so profoundly awful that Republicans will probably try to pass it into law over Christmas break. <laughs> Which is a really, really good line. But uh, Hollywood Reporter says that Netflix should reconsider its sequel. Um, Collider says that it's another David Ayer movie obsessed with guns, the kind of short shrift to the fantasy elements. The only review that's po- positive, like wildly positive, is Variety, who it's such a rave that I'm wondering if it's, if it's intentionally contrarian, because in the same review, the writer compares Max Landis favorably to Quentin Tarantino. So I, I'm not sure how much I, how much I can take that seriously. Uh, even The Verge, the second half of their review is entirely about the technical aspects of releasing a movie this big straight to streaming because they run out of things to say about the movie halfway through. It feels like uh, just reading through these, everybody from the guardian to the uh, associated press to Vanity fair, it's all either missed opportunity or flat out bad. And for a $90 million movie produced by Netflix starring Will Smith that they hope to turn into a franchise. It's not a start. And I hope, I hope I'm pleasantly surprised. I think that there is room for a, uh, modern day fantasy movie like this, I, it kind of scratches a very specific itch uh, for me as somebody who likes nerdy fantasy things. But I think it's telling, and we had another article on Slash Film today, because Netflix produced one of those uh, Yule Log videos, those fake fireplace videos that you can watch on their streaming service. But it's bright themed, so instead of a fireplace, it is a literal trash fire with magical fire. And that feels like a bizarre, awful commentary on the movie's reaction so far. Are you guys surprised by this reaction? Because I know we've talked before about how Bright did not look good, but the buzz is even worse than I thought it would be. I'm honestly not surprised. I really enjoyed David Ehrlich's review. That entire thing reads like poetry. (laughs) And um, David Ayer even complimented that review on Twitter. He said that it makes him a better director when he reads reviews like that. So that's pretty funny. I feel like the entire film, like crew and mar- marketing team are really self-aware of how ridiculous this movie is and how, I don't know if they're like acknowledging how bad it is, but I guess they are in terms of just like the dumpster fire that, that the Yule Log um, Netflix thing is. Yeah, I, I, I think this is just the right amount of bad that I expected it to be. I love that David says that this makes him glad that he saw the Emoji movie because because he saw that film, he can definitively declare that this is the worst movie of the year. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It just looks bad. I feel like the the orc makeup and effects just, I don't know. It, I'm just not, I wasn't that interested in seeing it. Actually, these reviews actually get me more interested in seeing it than anything else that I've seen, which is kind of sad. But uh Peter, yeah, don't the, forget, it might be Oscar-nominated orc makeups. <laughs> the thing that I find terrifying, this is also from David's review, is the idea that 
people are going to watch this because it's on Netflix and have it on the background and fiddle with their phones or do something else while they watch it, which will encourage Netflix to keep on spending $90 million on junk movies because people will half watch them not caring just because it's on Netflix. And that prospect, which I had never thought about, unsettles me to my core. <laughs> the question here is how is Netflix messing up the feature film division that they their original feature films so badly when it seems like the TV side of things has been better than most networks and, you know, most like uh, cable networks. I have a pet theory here and I've interviewed a lot of people for Netflix productions. And they always tell me the same thing. They always say Netflix is so great. They don't interfere at all. They offer no notes. And I think that some of their movies are like, even some of their shows are starting to prove that studio interference is sometimes a good thing. Sometimes you need an experienced studio head or an experienced businessman or producer to step in and say, Hey, this isn't working. Take a look at this. Or I think Netflix has their heart in the right place. They're trying to give artists as much freedom as possible, but I think maybe they need to learn. Sometimes it's best to step in and say, Whoa, let's pause, slow down and, and take a look at this as opposed to just letting people run wild. Uh, and that's just my pet theory. I'd love to be proven wrong, but that's how I feel about this. Think. How about this for a segue? I think some people would say the same thing about Lucasfilm and Kathleen Kennedy. <laughs> no? No? No one likes that as a segue? Okay. Uh, well, apparently an alt-right group has taken credit for the last Jedi uh, backlash on Rotten Tomatoes. HD, you wrote a whole article about this on the site. What do we know? So we reported earlier this week that the um, difference between the critical rating on Rotten Tomatoes and the audience rating was the largest difference that we've seen in any Star Wars film. Uh, the critics gave it a 92% certified fresh rating, whereas the audience score was only 54% as of today. So this was a very big um difference in opinion, but it didn't really reflect other audience scores like Cinema Score, which gave um, the, th the film an A, and IMDb, which only has, which has about a 7 out of 10, um, which is not a failing score compared to 54%. So there was a, a little bit of a rumor going around um, because of a Facebook post that the 54% um, Rotten Tomatoes audience score was actually manipulated uh, by a group that was trying to get the score as low as possible because they were unhappy with the film. And it turns out that this might actually be true because this alt-right group called uh, Down with Disney's Treatment of Franchises and Its Fanboys has admitted to the Huffington Post that it used bots to flood the website with negative reviews for The Last Jedi. So they said that they did this because they are protesting Star Wars, introducing more female characters into the universe, as well as the danger of characters like Poe Dameron and Luke Sky Skywalker being, quote unquote, turned gay. Uh, so oh it, it's it definitely is every argument that's typical of an alt-right um, sort of person, terrible person, because uh, <laughs> they they this guy who was a spokes, I guess. Uh, the moderator for the Facebook page for this group uh, made a jab at Ghostbusters. He said, uh, regarding female heroes, did you not see everything that came out of Ghostbusters? I'm sick and tired of men being portrayed as idiots. There's, there was a time we ruled society, and I want to see that again. This is why I voted for Donald Trump. Uh... So it seems less to be about 
actual valid criticisms about Last Jedi because this person also said that he was ready to hate it from the outset because it erased everything in the EU and more just about uh, the idea that the progressives are taking over Hollywood and that this film, because it's trying to emphasize diversity more, uh, is a bane on the Star Wars universe, which it is not. Let's put that out there. This These alt-right um, protests and, excuse me, and... Um, harassment of stars like um like kelly marie tran which her wikipedia page was flooded with a lot of racist sort of descriptions as well this does not have anything to do with people who actually have criticisms of last jedi so this is something that is a big problem uh rotten tomatoes apparently said they're they're taking the claim seriously and are looking into it but um yeah this is um the update so far this is weird because rotten tomatoes yesterday uh, issued a statement saying that the 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 activity on that page was free by real users, mm-hmm. um, which makes me think that you would they would be able to tell if it's a bunch of bots creating new users pages. Do you know what I mean like you'd think that they would be able to see if like these are actual active users that have had other activity on the site and aren't just being created to mass flood this page. Um, and if I was Rotten Tomatoes and if, if there was even the doubt that there was some kind of um, thing weird going on, I, I would think that if I was a spokesman for Rotten Tomatoes, I would not issue any statements saying that it is legit. <laughs> I don't know. It just uh, yeah. all seems weird to me. Um, but the, th- the thing that's bothering me about, about this, oh, by the way, th- these people are insane and they're crazy and they're bad people, obviously. Uh the thing that's in, uh, the, is bothering me is uh, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, I have some criticisms of Last Jedi. I mostly loved it. But I, I have some friends that did not like the film. And they're smart people. They're educated people. They're not fanboys. Um, and I feel like people are, like, lumping these people together. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, like, yeah. very easy to paint, like, a black and white picture. But, like, I, I don't think this is a movie that everybody's going to love. It is a divisive movie. Uh, it might not be as divisive as, as, as that Rotten Tomatoes score. But um, I don't know. I, I, I would just plead to people out there, uh, if you're seeing people on Twitter complaining about certain aspects of Last Jedi or or whatnot, you know, and I'm not talking about the idiots that are burning their shirts and whatnot i'm like you know consider that people can have a different opinion about a movie than your own and you know why not talk to that person and find out what they didn't like and have a discussion and argument do you know what i mean like turn that into something uh productive and not uh just trying to put those people down so ht wrote a really good line in an article earlier this week where i'm gonna paraphrase her since i don't have it open in front of me where she says that people are making a sport out of ruining movies for people, which is ruining converse conversations. And instead of having, instead of going out of your way to uh, shut down people who disagree with you, whether positive or negative, and try to have it be a binary "I win, you lose" type thing, let's talk about it. Let's have that conversation. I, mean, I love Last Jedi, uh, but I feel like a lot of really, really smart, good writers are maybe sidestepping the conversation because they don't want to be lumped in with these people. And I want to read that criticism because you should always read negative criticism of things you like that makes you a better writer a better viewer a better fan a better everything well okay. said hd <laughs> thank you <laughs> i'm gonna give you credit I for that. myself <laughs> uh 
yeah, our next item uh, might contain some spoilers for Last Jedi. So if you have not seen the film, you might want to turn away now. Uh, a new uh, magazine published by Lucasfilm apparently says that Snoke has at least one other apprentice. What do we know, HD? So Star Wars Insider Magazine, which is a fi- an official publication from Lucasfilm, uh, published a, an excerpt about Snoke. Uh, in which the first sentence said, Snoke had trained Kylo Ren and at least one other apprentice. So this is a huge sort of bombshell uh, because we had no other information about uh, Ky- Kylo Ren not being the only sort of apprentice for uh, Snoke. And um, because Snoke was uh, unceremoniously cut down during Last Jedi, we assumed that would be sort of the end of his story. But if there is another apprentice who is perhaps loyal to Snoke um, out there and maybe seeking revenge or seeking to um, change up the dynamic between Kylo Ren and General Hux, perhaps Snoke's influence could reach farther past his death. So this is um, this is a, a sort of exciting develop- development for people who were a little bit unhappy maybe with Snoke's uh death and ending in Last Jedi, because this uh, could mean that maybe his grand scheme uh, could still be in the progress. Yeah, I want to say I I was one of those people, because I feel like when you take Snoke out of the equation, you are kind of the First Order is kind of left with Kylo Ren, who is kind of like this flip floppy, you know, he's not sure what he wants to do kind of guy. And then the second in command is Hux, who has kind of been made into this buffoon. and to me, I, I always, you know, the, now I'm getting into the fanboyish part, but <laughs> I, I always imagined that Kylo Ren was going to redeem himself at the end of this arc, and maybe that's not going to happen. But if you were going to have Kylo Ren redeem himself, you would need some way for him to redeem himself, uh, you know, him to turn on his master. That already happened, you know. So maybe maybe if there's this other uh, bad guy, like, could this be one of the Knights of Ren? Could this be something in the past? Jacob, do you have any ideas on this? Um, I don't want to burst anyone's bubble, but my honest belief is that this apprentice, if we ever see him again, will be in a novel or comic or video game. I don't think we're going to see him pop up episode nine. I think episode nine is way too late to introduce a new villain. I think going to, I think we're with Kylo Ren to the end is the big bad. But I do think this is interesting. Uh, I I don't think it'll be a Knight of Ren because I'm, they never really they haven't really explained a lot about them in the actual movies. But I get the impression that they were more of underlings for Kylo Ren himself. Uh, but, but but where are um, they? We haven't seen these underlings since they've been mentioned in Force Awakens. Like, could they have been yeah. the, the the new uh, Imperial Guards, whatever they're called, the Praetorian Guards? No, I, I, my honest guess is that they have uh, vanished because Ryan Johnson did not want to write them. Because <laughs> <Like, laughs> even J.J. Abrams mentions them in the opening uh, crawl, I believe. But he himself doesn't actually use them. Makes me, we see one glimpse of them in Force Awakens in one shot, yeah. which makes which well, makes also, me wonder. If, also, yeah. Snoke uh, references them when talking to Kylo Ren, so it's not like just like one throwaway mention. Yeah. Well, I, I, in any case, I don't think that this apprentice is one of the guards. I don't think he is uh, a Knight of Ren. I think he's someone we haven't met before. And uh, Peter, I'm going to present a podcast. If we see this apprentice in Episode Nine, I will PayPal you ten dollars. I genuinely think this is a, a, a little fun detail yeah. that they're going to be putting into the new extended universe. But, you know, I'm just being I, I, just, I just don't see it happening. But this is fun to talk about. I think we will meet him. I just don't think he'll be on the big screen. 
I will say this. It's weird that they drop this bit of information. It's not in like any of the books, the visual dictionary, the art of. It's like in this Lucasfilm published, you know, Star Wars Insider special commemorative magazine and it's in like the first paragraph or the first sentence of like the Snoke section and this is a magazine that you know if you go to the beginning the front page of it has Pablo Hildago and uh, the Lucasfilm story group people credited for the information in the book it just seems weird that they would put it in there like like why is this the why are we only hearing about this in this one weird magazine uh is it possible? Uh, I do agree with you, Jacob. I think that it's more likely we will see this in the. Uh, are we calling this the expanded universe at this point? Like the books and stuff. Like, what do you call that? In articles, I call it the new canon because I don't think they have a name for it yet. Yeah. Uh, well, I think we're gonna yeah hear about it in the new canon. We we know that Snoke existed uh, since before the rise of the Empire, so I'm kind of wondering like you know there was a lot of theories out there that. Snoke was, uh, who was that? The uh, Darth uh, Sidious's teacher. Uh, Darth mm. Plagueis? Plagueis? My prequel knowledge is lacking. Yes, Darth Plagueis. Do you think he could have taught Darth Plagueis? Or do you think he could have been? I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm going too fanboy on this. Uh, I like yeah. the idea that Snoke isn't Sith at all. I, I like the idea, this is just me sp- spitting into the wind. Of him being disconnected from the Sith, from the far reaches of, of unknown space, having developed his Force powers and his connection with the Force in his own way. And I would love to read a book about that. I would love to read about a Dark Force user like Snoke, who does not have that Sith background training. I think, that's, I think it's fascinating and see what that training for an apprentice, whether it be Kylo Ren or somebody else. There's a story to be told there. You know what's uh, also like weird to see that. is all these books, all these, you know, Journey to the Force Awakens, Journey to the Last Jedi... All these novelists were told to stay away from Snoke, that they couldn't mention Snoke, that they couldn't delve into Snoke. And then, obviously, Last Jedi, Ryan Judson's film, basically makes that a moot point. Like, I'm just wondering why why were they telling everybody to stay away from that if it was going to end up being a dead end anyways? Part of me wonders if it's not the set of expectations. I mean, if they had further, further built up Snoke to the point where he is this figure who the biggest fans know inside and out then Johnson's big son twist in the movie would be, uh, nope, would be more gutting than usual. Um, so I, I, I don't know. Maybe they are, maybe they have other plans. Maybe they have someone lined up to write a Snoke novel and then want anybody treading on that. <laughs> uh, but I don't know if, if you, if you ask me and uh, you are, <laughs> uh, that's, that's it. So, yeah. And we should mention that the emperor in the fir- the original trilogy, they did not explain any of his backstory. We didn't get that to the prequels. Uh, HD, do you have any thoughts on uh, on this? Yeah, I'm I'm probably in agreement with you guys that this will probably be a an apprentice who remains mostly on the fringes of the main Star Wars saga, maybe in the novels or comics or, or things like that. Because I really like Kylo Ren as this main villain. I think he's a very modern villain, someone who's less predictable than someone like Snoke, who I know. I never really found compelling just because he was so like um, the emperor. So this one, I think I, this is an interesting revelation, but not something I, that I think will be uh, folded into episode nine, unless JJ Abrams suddenly sees all the hoopla around this and is like, Hmm, maybe I will do something with it. Okay. We, we have gone long enough with this. 
Um, I think this might be the longest episode of Slash Film Daily in the history of this show. Uh, but you know what? We're not going to have an episode tomorrow. So enjoy this. We will have a special holiday episode on Monday. Um, uh, I, I would like to wish one of our listeners, Michelle from Brazil, a happy birthday. She's one of our uh, biggest listeners and is a big fan of uh, Chris and HT. So happy birthday, Michelle. Uh, Happy and, birthday. Yeah. And uh, you can find more of the stories we mentioned today on SlashFilm.com. Uh, SlashFilm Daily is published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Uh, you can send us questions, Peter at SlashFilm.com. You can send us you know, questions, critiques, uh, suggestions, whatever you want. We, we read them. Uh, and uh, please go rate and review us on iTunes. That helps us out quite a bit. Tell your friends. And we'll see you on Monday.